0: This is The Guardian. Today, war in Europe. Our correspondents report on a day of chaos, confusion and tragedy in Ukraine. Late on Wednesday evening, Guardian correspondent Emma Graham Harrison got on a sleeper train from the Ukrainian capital, Kiev.
1: We've been rolling through this beautiful countryside. There's forests with huge clumps of mistletoe in the trees. There's huge ploughed fields of black earth.
0: She was heading to the city of Mariupol near the Russian border. She'd never get there. <laughs> At 4.30 a.m. Ukraine time, Vladimir Putin appeared on TV to announce a special military operation. As soon as he started speaking, bombs were falling on Ukraine. It was the beginning of an all-out invasion. Russian tanks and troops poured over the border. Cruise missiles and airstrikes hit military infrastructure and air bases across Ukraine. This was the worst-case scenario. Major cities were being bombed, including the capital, Kiev, and Mariupol, where Emma's train was heading. She turned back. Kiev,
1: and I guess just wondering what's going to be waiting for us there because, you know, we've been told by people there the air raid sirens have gone off, people are in shelters, there's already been attacks on and around the airport. So um, um, I don't know what what, what type of, of Kiev we'll find,
0: really. At 6am... The Guardian's Moscow correspondent, Andrew Roth, heard his phone ringing. The second I got
2: that phone call, um, I knew that something really bad had happened. And when I got to the computer and I started looking at the reports that were coming out of Ukraine, I didn't really understand how how big this was going to be.
3: It's just after 8 a.m. local time, and uh, the Russian military operation against Ukraine, ordered by Vladimir Putin, began Uh, about
0: three, three three-and-a-half hours ago. Um, By sunrise, Luke Harding, another Guardian foreign correspondent, was at Independence Square in central Kiev. I'm looking at a couple of
3: kids walking with their their parents. Um, But but this is an extraordinary situation. Uh,
0: The square is where, eight years ago, huge crowds gathered and overthrew the country's president, breaking Ukraine away from Russia and towards the West. Yesterday morning, with air raid sirens sanding across Kiev, the square was mostly empty. I've been talking to to, um, military guys who say that they're going to carry on, they're going to kind
3: of resist and defend their country. But um, you have to wonder in the face of this kind of overwhelming Russian assault, how viable that, that, that is and how long it will be before where I am the Ukrainian flags are taken down and Russian flags are put up
0: in their place. The 24th of February, 2022, could be remembered as a milestone day in the history of Europe, with consequences felt for decades. This is how that day looked, through the eyes of the Guardian's team of correspondents across Ukraine and Russia. From The Guardian, I'm Michael Safi. Today in Focus, the day Russia invaded Ukraine. Peter Beaumont, what time is it where you are and where are you?
4: Uh, It's just coming up for one o'clock and I'm in uh, Lviv in in western Ukraine. It's about 60 kilometres from the Polish border. Fortunately, in in Lviv, we haven't had any airstrikes here, but from about dawn for two and a half, three hours, I mean, the air raid sirens were going off.
0: It just sounds like, you know, I mean, absolute chaos, basically.
4: I mean, it's madly confusing. I mean, this is kind of not... I think the thing to say is is this isn't just kind of one incursion coming along a single axis of one place. You have effectively three broad thrusts. One coming down from the north towards Cherniv, which sort of sits on the road to Kiev. Another coming from the east towards Kiev. And then, sort of another advance as well. Apparently, it appears has been going on down the sort of self-styled breakaway republics around Luhansk and Donetsk, and so there is a general sense of kind of lots of stuff going on. And I think it's been designed just to be absolutely demoralising. And you know, I've been walking around the streets of Lviv this morning. You know, massive queues outside a lot of the banks, people queuing up pharmacies. You know, people having conversations about, you know, do they stay? I mean, people who are visiting from Odessa, should they go back and fight? You know, tourists who were still here. You know, I met a, a group of Polish tourists, you know, who are trying to get back to Gdansk and, and, and also asking themselves the question, which is if, if it's Ukraine today, is it going to be Poland tomorrow?
0: Peter, from these early strikes you've been telling us about throughout the morning, is there any reliable estimate of casualties of, of how many Ukrainians have been killed so far?
4: The, the last estimate I saw was around 40 dead so far. I mean, I don't know how reliable that is. I mean, that's coming out of sort of official sources. I mean, you know, it's impossible to cross-check at the moment. And, and you'd be surprised if, if there weren't, given sort of, you know, the levels of aggression that have been used so far.
0: And what have Ukraine's leaders said so far?
4: At the top level, I mean, clearly there's, there's been an effort you know, made by President Zelensky to try and kind of rally support and to try and get people to sort of stay united and stay calm.
1: Solidarity will be at the heart of what we do today in
5: order
0: to preserve the Ukrainian state. That being said, we have weapons to protect ourselves, to protect our lands. Over the hours ahead, what will you be looking out for exactly?
4: I think what I'm looking out for now is it's kind of clear from looking at where the reports of incursions are coming from that Kiev may be one of the major, if not the major, objective for this.
0: Emma, it's early afternoon in Ukraine, and you did manage to get another train back to Kiev, and now you're in a makeshift bomb shelter. What does that look like?
5: So, I mean, this bomb shelter is, is an underground car park, and I can mostly see journalists like me, which is the majority of people who are left in the hotel. The hotel has done a really nice job of trying to make it as hospitable as an underground car park can be. They've brought down chairs, blankets for people who are getting cold. There's a couple of kids from the neighbourhood, which is somehow much more heartbreaking than all the adults. Just seeing, you know, these little girls here uh, and, you know, them having to deal with this,
0: this threat. Also, you know, how their future might be changed. And on that train journey back that you took to Kiev, did you see any signs out the window of this Russian invasion?
5: So, I mean, the the sort of strange thing about about war is obviously it doesn't move uniformly across the country. So I was actually going from one city which was bombed that night and Nipro was bombed to another city which was bombed last night and is being bombed now, it seems, or at least being attacked now. But, you know, in between the war physically hasn't caught up. So I looked out and I could see people still going to work. There was a little girl on a bike with her parents, so it looked like she was going to school and obviously, what's happening now is going to change the life of, of everybody in Ukraine. But, but for people in those those towns and villages, the, the physical reality of war hadn't arrived. But I I would imagine the emotional sort of shockwaves have, because there'll be you know many many families in in those villages who have loved ones serving in the army or living in the cities, who they'll already be waking up this morning and,
0: and worrying about. Emmett, and, and, I mean, for what it's worth, I've just seen on our, our live blog now as it's gone 2pm uh, in Kiev that tanks from Belarus, Russian tanks from Belarus might be as little as two hours away from Kiev.
5: I mean, that is, you know, there was thought that there, there, there was going to be an attempt to do some kind of pincer movement on the capital. Um, and there were reports of, of Belarusian troops moving across the border. So that certainly doesn't sound something beyond the realms of possibility. When this began, people thought that maybe Putin's ambitions would be limited to to eastern Ukraine. But I think you can see from the scale of the attack, the fact that the capital is being targeted, that much of the West is being targeted, that this is aimed at all of Ukraine. It's it's not just a partial thing.
0: Yeah, yeah. There may not be a safe place in the country right now.
5: I think that that may be correct,
0: Yes. All right, Emma, we're going to check in with you a bit later, but please, until then, uh, stay safe.
5: Thank you. Take care. Bye.
3: Hi. Hi. Can you hear me, Michael? How, how does that sound?
0: It sounds okay. I can hear you, definitely.
3: So, so fine. So let's,
0: let's do it. You're in a basement right now. You, you've actually been asked to evacuate?
3: Yeah, I'm in the, the hotel where I'm staying, close to the Golden Gate, this there are apparently further airstrikes on Kiev, uh, and so so we, by which I mean the hotel staff, journalists uh, are currently um, currently on the ground.
0: And look, what does Kiev look like and feel like right now, just after one pm local time?
3: Um, I mean, it, it, it's it's a sort of grey, overcast, ordinary Thursday with rain and, and cloud. Apart from the fact that that it, that it is, you know, that there's a war going on. I mean, a lot of people have been trying to leave the, the sort of boulevards leading west out of Kiev are choked with traffic. You can't fly out anymore. The airport's been bombed. There are no more kind of planes. And I mean, I've, I've talked to city residents who, who, who woke up with the bombing, heard the car alarms going off, phoned their loved ones. And some people are trying to flee and, and others, particularly people in the military and police, are, are digging in and say they're going to fight. I mean, the, the government of, of President Zelensky is, is, is here they haven't left. The picture is very fluid. It's very chaotic. Uh, And I have to say, Michael, it just seems astonishing to be reporting on a war in the heart of Europe. I mean, future historians can can try and figure out how this happened and why this happened. But at the moment, there's just a mood of kind of um, foreboding and, I think, horror.
0: And when you say that police and the military have dug in around the city, what does that look like? Have they set up checkpoints? I mean, are they actually like in some kind of military formation in Kiev itself?
3: Um, no. <laughs> I mean, that's the curious thing. And, and uh, really, there's been a sort of long conversation here about whether Zelensky um, and his team should have done more to prepare the, the, the city against Russian attack. And, you know, he, he, has been, he was very keen right up until about 24 hours ago to say, look, you know, we're not going to do that because that would cause panic. So there was no sandbagging, there were no windows taped, nothing like that. I mean, he's now, as of this morning when the Russian attack began, he, he addressed the nation, he's introduced martial law, which gives gives the authorities kind of uh, pretty sweeping powers. But it, it's a, fa- a fast changing picture. And I, th- I think, you know, where we will be this time tomorrow, I don't know.
0: And, Luke, we've just heard from Peter in Lviv that there are real concerns there could be a move on Kiev in the next days, even hours. How worried are people about that prospect?
3: Um, well, I mean, I mean, people are kind of pretty, pretty dazed. But, I mean, obviously they're worried. I mean, that's why huge numbers are, seem to be leaving. But not everyone has left. Not everyone can leave. There are about 3 million people in Kiev. And if you throw in the suburbs, it's about 4 million people. It's just not possible for 4 million people to leave immediately and so, some will stay and some will, some will fight. I mean, I think a minority. But, but Kiev does seem to be a target, yeah. I mean, Kiev has been bombed. The airport, the, the international airport at Borisopoul has been attacked. There's another military airport about 30 kilometers out which has also been attacked where Ukraine has this sort of fighter
4: bomber.
0: All right, Luke, stay safe and take care and we'll get back to it.
3: Understood. Okay. Thanks a lot.
0: Thank you. Okay. All right. Stay safe. Hey, Andrew, are you there? Hey. Hey, how's it going? Mm -hmm.
2: Yeah, it's pretty bad, but, you know.
0: Andrew Roth is in Moscow for The Guardian.
2: I think people are just shocked, to be honest. Um... It's just, it's, it's something I've never seen, seen before, I guess. And I think people just didn't expect it would come to this. They always thought there was going to be an off ramp, and it just never came.
0: I mean, obviously, it isn't just like a news event, it's something that you're really feeling. What is it about what's happening here that has left you so shocked?
2: I think that it's, it's kind of having been here for such a long period of time over 10 years. Um, and hearing so often this rhetoric about uh, about brotherly nations or just kind of getting a sense that there are really so many connections between Ukraine and Russia, um, you know, to the point where, you know, people have family on the other side, millions of Ukrainians uh, live in Russia, millions more come here to work, to make money and to send it home. You know, there's shared history uh, in the Soviet period, a difficult history, but shared. And even before that, and I think to launch this attack with not even a pretense, really not even a real pretext, that it's it's impossible to ever see it really going back. I think that's what's so surprising to me. Uh, In 2014, when Crimea took place, there was massive public support. It was a scary time. It was, you know, this kind of surge of nationalism. But it seemed like the public wanted it. In this case, it doesn't seem like anybody really wants this to be honest, you know, beyond maybe some, uh, some state television channels and, and Vladimir Putin. And I think for me waking up and watching the video and then seeing the attacks uh, and just thinking about all my friends, I guess, on both sides in both countries, it was just a, a really painful moment.
0: And Andrew, the conversations you've been having in the streets with people, I mean, what stayed with you? What are some things people have said to you that, that you know, you're still thinking about a few hours later?
2: You know, one thing is just about how truth is the kind of first victim in these kind of events. I was at the bank today, you know, just checking in to see what the situation was with, with money. People are changing rubles into dollars because they view that as a safe investment. The ruble has, you know, tanked essentially this morning and has become much less valuable than it was. And there was a woman standing in line, which was, you know, a long line. And she said to somebody else, you know, my, my friend in, uh, in, in Harkiv is writing me and saying that they're bombing the city. And another woman in line says, oh, I I haven't heard they're attacking cities or anything like that. And you realize that based on the information that they're getting, that they had just completely different views on what was going on. One of them had a friend who was telling her, you know, there's a large invasion going on in my country. There's another woman who's saying, no, you know, I haven't heard anything about that. But both of them are equally affected. Both of them are standing in line at the bank to buy as many dollars as they can because they basically know that that the, the Russian economy and they're going to bear the brunt for whatever this decision was to attack Ukraine.
0: I mean, we've seen Vladimir Putin intervene in Crimea in 2014, in Syria after that. What is it about it that differs so dramatically, that is such a milestone in his long rule in Russia?
2: The scope of this and the scale of this is so much larger than the Ukraine. You know, this is a kind of seminal moment, a turning point, I think, in terms of European history, certainly in terms of post-Cold War history, and uh, I guess living through that moment and realizing that, that this is happening as you watch, um, just makes it almost surreal. It's become clear that this is about more than politics, and maybe even you know, more than, than a popularity rating for Putin. I mean, it's really about, he's thinking about his legacy and his, his time in history. You know, and he's not he's not working for the kind of populist at this point. He's thinking much more about what are they going to write about me in 20 years or whenever he leaves the Kremlin. So I don't see anything that really will hold him back uh, in terms of searching for this kind of glory.
0: And how do you think he wants history to remember him? I mean, if this is all about his legacy, what does he want that legacy to be? Well,
2: I think he sees the legacy as kind of the resurrection of Russia as a strong power You know, going back maybe not to the Soviet Union, but to something new, um, where uh, he really creates a home for Russia and the Russian ness, I guess, that he's kind of created in his mind, you know, this this national religion of the Second World War. So I really do think that he, he views himself as a seminal figure like that and is thinking very much about that because it's one of the only ways to explain what he's doing right now.
0: I mean, that's like a megalomaniacal way to view oneself. Has he always been that way or has something changed in him in the past week?
2: I don't think something changed in the past week, but I think we've seen a change in him in the past years. You know, When I came here, there was so much rhetoric about the stability in the economy and and kind of making things better for ordinary Russians. And I really think something clicked in 2014 around the Ukraine crisis and thought that it's possible to change borders in Europe. But now he's done it to such a bigger degree that it's clear that this is something that's, that's been in his mind for a long time. You know, one thing that you talk to people about is how isolated Putin is. One, because he's been in power for so long. Two, because, because of COVID. You know, he, there are not many people who are able to see him at this point on short notice. And the idea that, you know, he's been kind of turning this stuff over in his mind, writing these kind of long articles. Apparently he does write them himself. About Ukraine. Um, I think it's, it's, he's had a lot of time to think about his kind of longer mission. And this is an idea that he's had in his mind, I think, for some months or maybe years.
0: Andrew, you've talked about this being a decisive moment in, in European history that basically everything has changed today. Tell me, what's changed? What is different about the world today that wasn't the case just yesterday?
2: I think that in the last uh, 30 years, minus a few conflicts, like we really got used to the idea that there are influence blocks. There's Russia on one side, there's the West on the other. Um, But in general, you know, the the rules of the game are kind of defined. I think that now, you know, every country is looking very carefully or more carefully at at what the actual uh, guarantees it has in terms of military protection from. Uh, the force of countries that, that want to change their politics, that want to draw them in closer. So I think this has, you know, obviously big implications for Belarus as well, where Russia has stationed troops in the area. I think also for, for a lot of states in Eastern Europe that are members of NATO, but are still going to be very concerned and thinking, you know, if Russia comes for us next, are we sure that somebody's going to step up for us?
0: And that that change started on the 24th of February, 2022. I mean, this is a, an important day.
2: This is an absolutely important day for tens of millions of Ukrainians. I think for tens of millions of Russians as well, um, who, are, who are waking up, in, I think a different country now um, to the one that existed uh, yesterday, but certainly that existed five or 10 years ago because there really aren't any more illusions about you know, the kind of lengths that it's willing to go to. And I, I just think for most of Europe, I think that people have to think much more carefully about what makes us safe what protects us and, you know, how are we going to protect ourselves if, if this happens to us tomorrow?
0: Andrew, just finally, I mean, we've seen lots of different guises of Russia, you know, since the fall of the Soviet Union. In the 90s, it was perhaps flirting with becoming a kind of liberal power, part of the global market. More recently, we've seen Russia being intransigent, still in the global system, but playing a bit of a spoiler role. After today, What do you think Russia's place in the world can be?
2: Well, Russia is now Fortress Russia. I mean, the role at this point is, first of all, going to be economic sanctions. You know, Russia is going to be vilified rightfully uh, by the international community to a degree that I think it never has been before. This is something that's going to hurt ordinary Russians too. I mean, the idea of travelling abroad for vacation, of working abroad, of being citizens of, of Europe, which they feel themselves in many cases... I think it's going to be very difficult to contemplate in the future.
0: Coming up, the world responds to Putin's offensive. It's nearly 9pm in Ukraine and the US President Joe Biden has just finished speaking in Washington. This is what he said.
4: Putin's actions betrays sinister vision for the future of our world one more nations take what they want by force. But it is a vision that the United States and freedom-loving nations everywhere will oppose with every tool of our considerable power. The United States and our allies and partners will emerge from this stronger, more united, more determined, and more purposeful. And Putin's aggression against Ukraine will end up costing Russia dearly economically and strategically. We will make sure of that.
0: He wasn't alone in using that kind of strong language. This hideous and barbarous venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. Boris Johnson added that Britain was standing with Ukraine. The French president, Emmanuel Macron, said it was a turning point in European history and promised the EU would, in his words, show no weakness. So far, there's no sign that any country is preparing to intervene militarily. But what has been promised are crippling sanctions and isolation from the global financial system. And not just that. For its part, European football's governing body said it was taking the Champions League final away from St. Petersburg. On the subject of the economy, it's worth noting earlier sanctions seem to have had very little effect so far. And Russia will actually get a windfall from oil prices soaring past $100 a barrel today. In response to this very crisis. In the western city of Lviv, Peter Beaumont has just filed his story for tomorrow's paper. Peter, it's 8pm in Lviv. As we approach the end of the first day of this war, what does the map of Ukraine look like? Where is the fighting most intense?
4: I mean if you look at the map it, it it looks like all all around this big crescent all the way around from sort of the the Chernobyl exclusion zone all the way down around the the border with Belarus with with Russia all the way down through through the breakaway republics to the Crimea it's a big crescent and all along that crescent there are now chunks that have been been bitten out of Ukrainian territory it appears that Russian forces are now in control of the Chernobyl exclusion zone. We know that there was attempted airborne landing, which seems to be to be holding just outside Kiev, following a helicopter attack on a sort of Kiev base. We know that Russian forces have pushed pushed towards Khark- Kharkiv, and also the the down towards southeast, it, it it looks as though the, the different sort of axis of Russian advance appear to be like two arms that are joining together at, at, at the bottom of the Dnieper River. So it, 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 looks, it looks pretty scary. But at the same time, I mean, it does appear as though the Ukrainian armed forces are fighting back. And in particular, there's been this battle that's been going on all day around this um, Around this uh, airbase outside Kiev, which is which is a sort of crucial location today, Peter. There's also been this huge movement of
0: people towards the west of the country, where you are, as well as being a war. Is this now also becoming a kind of refugee crisis?
4: I think it's got a potential to be a refugee crisis. I mean, people are people are trying to get on the trains to get out to the west. I, I spoke to my colleague Sean Walker, who's who's in one of the cities to the south of me at the moment, and. He was saying that that rapidly petrol stations are running out of gas. I mean, there are queues everywhere. You hear conversations about what the price of things like bread are going to be in the coming days. You know, it's already having very, very quickly sort of a social economic impact.
0: Emma, at the beginning of today, there were concerns that Kiev could be in the sights of the Russian military. At the end of it, is there any clarity about the future of the Ukrainian capital?
1: If anything, it's it's less clear what's going to happen to Kiev. There's lots of um, really alarming reports that there might be a Russian attempt to take the city this evening, um, that there might be an attack to sort of decapitate the government, you know, take out senior figures and, and take over control of the city. So people are really bracing for another difficult night. I think planning to spend it in shelters, in metro stations um, and waiting to see what tomorrow brings. A lot of people here are very much taking things day by day, even hour by hour.
0: Thanks very much to Peter Beaumont, Emma Graham Harrison, Luke Harding and Andrew Roth. You can read all their reporting on the Ukraine invasion at theguardian.com. There's also coverage there on anti-war protests in Russia on Thursday night across 40 cities where more than 700 people have been arrested so far. And there's more on the British government's response to this crisis over on our sister podcast, Politics Weekly, with John Harris. And that's it for this very long day. This episode was produced by Elizabeth Kassin, Hannah Moore, and Alex Atak, with production assistance from Veronica Straszynska. Sound design was by Rudy Zagadlo. The executive producers are Mithley Rao and Phil Maynard. We'll be back on Monday. This is The Guardian.